Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we're spending time with Gabe Turner, who is the executive director of the Draper Venture Network, a Silicon Valley-based self-governed organization that facilitates collaboration between a number of global independent venture funds. Gabe, thank you for joining us today. We have known you for a long time and having been members of the Draper Network in an older instance of it. So I look forward to learning about the new Draper Network. Maybe let's start with that. Can you tell us what is the Draper Network? Sure thing. And thanks for having me. So I'm executive director of the Draper Venture Network, and it's a very unique entity in the world of venture capital in that it brings together a bunch of independent VC firms from here in the Silicon Valley, where we're based, around the US and around the world. So close to 25 member funds, all of which are independent, all of which raise their own money. They deploy the money as they see fit, but they belong to this alliance called DVN, really because it benefits them as VCs and their portfolio companies. It benefits to have a team on the ground in the Valley that's really a de facto extension of their venture team that supports the portfolio companies of our, our member funds with a variety of services, as we call them, but this is really helping those companies get customers, typically corporate customers, whether here in the Valley or globally. We help those companies with any soft landing support that they need when they're coming to the U.S., opening up an office here or, or just a sales team or what have you. And we help those VCs out. And, and so, yeah, partly is having a, a team here, but also connecting those VCs with one another. And so that they have touch points globally. They have people that they can ping, not just for co-investing, but advice and what you're seeing, whether we have funds across Europe, Asia, Latin America, Southeast Asia, Australia. And it's helpful to know how tech trends are spreading in these parts of the world and, and exchanging notes. Yeah, in terms of deal diligence, but also just how to grow a fund. A lot of our funds are sub 100 million. All of our funds are sub three, 300. So we're technically small VC, small cap VC. And so it really helps to exchange notes and how to approach LPs. So raising funds and effectively deploying money. And the beauty of our network is we, we've been around since 1990 when Tim Draper launched this, right after he launched DFJ. Right. And I was going to ask about that because the network was a little bit different back then. And so it's evolved a little bit. So tell us a little bit about the origin, the nature of it now, which you described, but also I don't think there's anything else out there like this, right? Are you a unique entity? It's quite unique. And that's, yeah, we've seen a few LPs who group together their small funds that they invest in perhaps to share notes, but nothing quite like this. And yeah, so the origins are that Tim was always an advocate of, of spreading venture capital globally. And his father was as well. And you could argue his grandfather is one of the first VCs had a big vision for this industry. And so when Tim launched DFJ in 89, the next year he goes and, and starts formal partnerships with funds across the U.S., people that he knew that were starting funds in Utah, LA, Texas, New York. And at first it was more of a branding play where they got a DFJ brand and they were able to operate independently, but the brand, obviously the formal affiliation to the Silicon Valley really helped those VCs just get legitimacy and, and grow their own funds. 
So that's how it originally started. The model was really around the the branding and marketing play, but it evolved significantly. It grew internationally. And then eventually when I took it over in 2013, it really became much more about the services and less about the marketing brand. We, we really brought on funds that actually had their own brands and we would just work to help build their brands in their regions by providing them, like I said, these services, by providing them knowledge, insight, access to more companies and helping their companies grow and ultimately making their funds more successful, which would be the ultimate help that we could provide. The network has gone through various evolutions Given the growth of this industry, I guess Tim's vision proved to be correct, right? That the VC would be a global game. And he always said he envisioned a VC on every corner, like an ATM, right? Where anyone has an idea, they can go to their local VC shop and raise some money. And he could make a good argument for that actually taking place now. Or any startup around the world with a strong internet connection and a good idea could go and get it funded. And talk to us about some of the members of the network. So they vary from funds that are in their 10th fund, I'd say, or maybe the eighth funds. Draper Associates, Tim's early stage fund here in the Valley of Draper Spree, which is based out of London doing deals in Europe. Those funds have been around for a long, long time. You have new or up and coming funds that maybe are in their second and third. We have funds like in Southeast Asia, Wavemaker Partners, which also has an LA affiliate. We have funds in South America. Draper Cygnus out of Argentina, DNX Ventures out of Japan. So funds that are really located all over, a lot of them have a Silicon Valley presence. So they'll have a local local office with us here in San Mateo. But yeah, drapernetwork.com will give you the full list of our member funds. Currently running about 25. We have two programs really that we run. It's the main Draper Venture Network is for typically funds that are sort of mid-stage Series A, Series B type funds. And then we have a, a seed stage network that we call DVN Beta, which really beta is just because the network is beta. The funds themselves are very, very established. But some of those funds are doing things perhaps in crypto or they're doing online funding platforms, like alternative models of venture, you can call them. Funds that we really want to take a chance on because Tim really believes that the venture industry will be disrupted and ideally from within. So we're adamant about supporting those new models of funding. And so we hope to be part of that disruption. Right. And how do you decide to add new members and and what does that process look like? It's what I say, push-pull. Sometimes we are brought funds that we're introduced to that are high quality. We have our obviously strict criteria of of the type of funds that we want, which are really the best in class in their regions. Funds that are highly regarded by their fellow VCs and also highly regarded by the CEOs, by the founders that really like to raise from them. We do a lot of diligence before we bring a fund on. But yeah, some of those funds are brought to us. And a lot of times we look at our map and say, hey, where do we have the gaps? Where should we have a fund, right? And in those instances, I will go to the region and typically meet with all of the the funds in that region, which in some communities is not that big. So I can meet with all. And at that point, we just figure out where there's a mutual fit, right? Where there's a fund that we really like and they really need the services that we're offering. And once there's that fit, we take them through our application process and eventually the fellow member funds and, and the board approves. And they come on. So it it tends to be for a beta fund, it might be a six month process for a main fund. It might be a year or even more before we bring them on. And what's the business model of the whole network? Is there some contribution of fees and to power the sharing platform? How does that work? Yeah, it's a great question. We are technically operate like a nonprofit in that our fees, our budget is made up of membership dues that we exhaust annually. And so every fund pays dues according to its size. We basically like three tiers of, of size. And that's really to support the team on the ground. We do a bunch of events, or we did, right, when we could do physical ones. 
to bring all the funds together, the, the GPs together. We do an, an annual retreat every spring with the general partners. So we do all these activities that the member fees fund that. And then we have a sliver of carry in each of our funds, typically half a point of carry. So not very much. And we're very open about publicizing that because historically it was higher and it varied fund to fund. And I was adamant when I came in that that should be standardized and it should be quite low because what that did is attracted a lot of really high quality funds to say, look, we're not going to give away a lot of carry and we're getting these really great services. So it's a no brainer. And that allowed us to really attract high quality funds. So yeah, that's the model. It's nice because it keeps the team incentivized. We're aligned and we want the companies to succeed and grow. So we're out there trying to make deals for them. We don't have a shared carry pool though. So people often ask, well, it's like, are all the funds incentivized and tied in with one another? And we, we haven't done that just because accounting wise, it was a nightmare, right? We may have funds coming and going. And so how do you share carry amongst all? I, I should add something that was a feature of the first version of the Draper network, which, and you're exactly right. It was a nightmare to administer the, the so-called oh, yeah. Draper matrix. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, they've, they've been tested. They tried to test in the past and you'll ask, well, what, what is the incentives for one fund to help the other? Why pick up the phone when another Draper network member phone calls you? Really, they do it because it's kind of a, I'm going to help you and you'll eventually help me when I give you a call, right? So your portfolio company, Thanasis, might be expanding to Japan and you call our Japan-based DNX and you're like, hey, can you help these guys on the ground when they get there? They're happy to do it because you would help their company perhaps in a, in a future instance or what have you. So that's really been the motivator thus far. Now, I say all this with, we're living in a new world, right? Where there's, and we're obviously big advocates of blockchain and of, of everything crypto oriented. And so that infrastructure allows us the idea of perhaps having a sort of token for DVM and perhaps enabling in not so distant future, the sharing of economics amongst all these funds in a very easy way to do that. Well, that's interesting. So you're thinking about doing something similar, leveraging the blockchain. Yeah, very much exploring the idea of, of, of a token, a deviant token where funds that come on can access it. And that's really backed by all the funds and their performance. And so they would have economics essentially in, in all the other funds. The other thing we're exploring and I've long advocated for is the idea of a, a fund of funds that central in, in the past, again, DVN has never written a check to any of our members, right? But we are in the early stages of forming something that would be a vehicle that can invest in our member funds. So we're excited to hopefully soon announce that. And you guys do, as to your point, an annual GP summit, and you also do a CEO summit. Can you talk to us about those two events and whether that's going to happen in 2021? Hopefully. I mean, that was a big bummer not to be able to do it. We did virtual stuff last year, which, which, which actually was pretty interesting. But certainly it's our flagship event. It's something that the network is so powerful because when we get everybody together, you really see, wow, these are companies from all over the world. These are investors coming from all the world to our annual CEO summit, which happens every November in the Silicon Valley, we bring our funds, all their best companies, and we bring about 150 of our corporations that we have relationships with that want to meet these companies. So over the course of that week, like a thousand one-on-one meetings happen, a bunch of interesting conversations that then evolve into partnerships and contracts and the like. So it's really effective. And then we also do an LP summit alongside that. So our funds are able to meet a whole bunch of perspective and new LPs. Funds will bring their own LPs to mingle because they don't find it competitive. If you know their fund, let's say in Southeast Asia, their LP wants exposure to a fund in US or Europe or what have you, well, meet the DVN member fund in from that region. So it's a nice kind of sharing of contacts and resources there. And it's just a really fun way to get everyone together. So that's our annual event in the fall. In the spring, we do just a GP only retreat that's hosted by a different country, a different fund every year. So we get to go and explore and meet and visit their ecosystem and the like. Those in-person events are the lifeblood of our groups. And we really miss 
those. And, and yeah, hopefully they'll be happening late this year and certainly next year. Great. I was thinking maybe to tell the story of one of the companies in the portfolio and how did the company or the investor benefit from being part of the network? I'm sure you have several examples. Do you want to share one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll share one that's currently just a funding exam. And I talked about crypto and blockchain and the importance of that. There was it was coming out of France called Ledger, which you and your listeners might be familiar with. It was hardware kind of wallet for protecting crypto. And it was sourced by our London-based Esprit. They had a partner in, in France that brought the deal. And this is when the company was still, I think, in A, or maybe they're raising their B. And they really wanted to work with Esprit, Draper Esprit, really because of the network and their access to global funds. And yes, the fact that Tim was associated with it, him being a big advocate, a very sort of public advocate of, of crypto. So we got Esprit to invest alongside Tim's fund, Draper Associates, and then because they were eyeing China actually as a big market, we also had Draper Dragon, our China-based member fund, joining the deal as well. So the, kind of those three funds came together and invested in that, I think that Series B with, a, I think they led the Series B collectively, which is great. We have a few of those kind of syndicated deals every year. It just shows that it's really to the company's benefit to bring on the network into the cap. And what does the company do? So it's a hardware wallet in the world of protecting your crypto, having that kind of hard asset it, for a lot of people is what they want, right? Somewhere where they can store their keys and really protect the, their assets from anything online. So it's one of the leading hardware wallet providers, Ledger. And I'm, I'm sure many in the crypto world know about it. So that was one example that as a deal came together because really of the network. But there's been plenty of examples that, yeah, we've been able to get involved and really help a company because of our global reach. Every day we get reached out to by companies across the network that either are moving to the US and could use DVM's help in terms of establishing its presence and getting customers here, or the opposite. They're leaving the US, let's say, and they're going to a region where they know we have presence and they really want our help in doing so. I can point to a ton of examples where we've been part of that company's growth and success, and we've inked big deals from them from our, our corporate contacts. And with that global reach, do you want to talk about maybe some of the trends that you're seeing in the market overall? Yeah. The, the beauty of our network is it's very diverse in terms of investment areas, right? We have a bunch of funds that are B2B, a bunch that are B2C. So we get to see a lot in a lot of places. The stuff that always gets me really excited is technologies that maybe are evolving in the U.S., but have a use case, maybe almost sometimes a stronger use case outside in emerging markets, for instance. And then there's trends that just evolve, that start, originate from emerging markets and really never make their way to us here in North America or Western Europe, just because it's not for really developed markets, right? I look at fintech, which is something that's big across our network. And we have a fund, affiliate fund in Mexico that has a few fintech players that are doing incredibly well, right? Because they're really helping bring these economies, huge growing middle class in places like Mexico. And these are the technologies that are bringing these people to the forefront. They're kind of digital native, right? Look at, or Indonesia, where our, our Southeast Asian fund has a lot of presence, where you have 4%, I think, of the population have bank accounts, but 45% and growing have Facebook accounts, right? And so the opportunity that opens up, right, for a lot of these fintech players to be mobile, social first, you're seeing new banks pop up in all these countries. And you know, there's no question to why they're succeeding is because they're really going after these customers as their first bank, as their first ability to be banked and using their, their very phone that they use to access their social media. So those are trends that we're seeing certainly globally. We talk about blockchain and being the nucleus of what's happening in that world. 
we're seeing all of our funds, not all, but I'd say the majority now have dabbled in one or two investments in the, the blockchain crypto space. Some funds in our network are fully dedicated crypto oriented funds. We actually spoke to Lior in a prior episode from Blockchain Valley. Yeah, yes, of course. So Blockchain Valley Ventures is doing this in Europe. We have a fund called Draper Gorn Holmes doing this here in, in, in LA, but they're doing it in the US and they're seeing such cool trends as far as the tokenization, digitization of everything from NFTs to just uses of blockchain for security, certainly for finance. Where we sit, we get to see so much. Yeah, I'd say those on the consumer side are really fun trends that we see as far as fintech and consumer. Got it. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up in this job? That's a great question. Venture is one of those funny places where it's not this linear exercise by any means. So I was doing a lot of strategy consulting, corporate consulting. I worked for Deloitte Consulting here in San Francisco for many years and typically tech clients, big tech clients. So I was in the large corporate side and, and found my way to entrepreneurship. Funny enough, I'd left consulting for a few years to help start this sustainable food company. And, and I really caught the bug there and, and then went and jumped to a few tech startups Meandered back to consulting, but ultimately the entrepreneurial route really spoke to me. And so I was working as an interim COO at a startup when I got the call from DFJ that this gentleman, Don Wood, I think you know Thanasis, was kind of running the network. Yeah, sure. And said, Hey, Gabe, you've done the consulting stuff, you've ran boards, but you have the knowledge of the startup ecosystem and you've been leading a few startups. And so put that together and come help us reimagine this network, really. And so, yeah, that was almost eight years ago. And it's been a very wild ride. And like I said, we have big plans for what's coming forth for the network. But yeah, I did not come to this from starting an analyst to a principal to our associate principal. I did not climb that ladder, which is, there's nothing wrong to it. I just think ventures for those who consider, and I get a lot of calls from people who are always saying, how do I break in? I mean, you, you know, as well as I, it's not that you have to necessarily put in your time doing X, Y, Z, that you have to be a banker or you have to be a consultant, you have to go that route. You don't. I mean, I think just being really passionate about a space and getting somehow experience in that space, right? Whether as an operator, sure, if you can go on the investing side, great, but there are many ways to break into venture capital. Sometimes just having money and access to money is one of those. But yeah, I, I certainly did not imagine being in, in VC a decade ago. And you mentioned entrepreneurship. What was it about entrepreneurship that you were really attracted to? And then obviously now you're in venture capital. What is it that you love the most about being in VC? As I was doing the strategy consulting stuff, I would look at clients that were these mega companies with 10,000, 100,000 employees, and the ability to make a sizable impact would just get progressively harder just by the nature of the bureaucracy and the politics and just the size, the sheer size of some of these companies. And I said, I, I really get a kick about making impact, like putting your work in and knowing you're actually steering the ship and not just doing this cog in the wheel. And so with entrepreneurship, you like with these smaller companies, you knew that I, I just really enjoyed that part of just diving in and helping take the company where it was meant to go. And really feeling the impact of every decision and sale that you would get and et cetera would be a big deal. And so I, that just was the bug that bit me, I think, is just this ability at a smaller scale to make a, a bigger impact. So I just felt like it, it was more fun. And certainly that was at the time when you can start succeeding as a small company, right? Because historically, just as a tech con company, you just had to have way more resources to get a company going, naturally. And so now with the fact that you just needed, again, a couple of people with a good idea and a laptop, it, it just coincided with the time that the, the idea for startup to succeed was possible. 
So yeah, like many other people, I said, where do I put my energy? How, what, what ideas do I want to support? And what do I want to go forth with? And what I found was there was a lot, there was a lot of ideas that I liked. And it was hard to fully involve myself in all of them. And so I think the being on the VC or the investor side really allowed you to just spread yourself and support a lot of ideas that you thought were going to be big, not as necessarily the operator, but as one step removes the investor. But I am much probably like you guys, just a very active investor in the sense, like I'm in there with the operators and their day-to-day problems become my day-to-day problems. But the ability to scale yourself and spread yourself across various of these is what I love about the investing side. No matter what I go do, I think I'll always have a hand, a foot in VC and in investing in companies. What's your biggest goal for DVN for 2021? Although we're halfway through the year, so <laughs> maybe let's spread that out into 2022 for the next year. We could use all the time we can get. <laughs> we have big plans. I'd say rebuilding year for us in that we took advantage of the hiatus, I guess, that the pandemic enabled for our group. Again, because we are a very digital group, but that the physical part of our entity is so important that we said, okay, let's take this time to rethink a lot. And the gentleman, Sid Mafia, who works with me, and now he's going to be running the day-to-day at the network. And he's going to be really spearheading this fund-to-funds concept that will really reinvent us as an entity. And, and that's what I love about DVN is we've talked about earlier the stages that we've gone through and the evolutions that we've gone through. And this is that next evolution where we went from the marketing branding arm to a services provider, and now we're source capital for these funds. So that's going to be a big change that I I really am excited about because you've seen the explosion of venture, you've seen these funds everywhere, but it's as a result of that, it's become very competitive for VCs. It's become hard to raise money as a new first-time fund in an emerging market. And so if we can be a first check-in and a source of validation for these VCs, I think we provide a tremendous amount of value and while still continuing to deliver the services, right? So the model that Andreessen made famous for entrepreneurs, right? And being not just a check, we want to be that for venture funds where we're not just going to be the check. We're going to continue to provide the network services, the connections and, and, and everything else. But the check is a key component. All of our member funds are fundraising all the time now. And so we knew that we had to adapt our model to fit those needs. And that's what we're doing. So that's the big sort of plans now for 21. And then hopefully by 22, we'll have at least a first close on that, that we can start writing some checks to funds. Right. That's really exciting. I know that you mentioned this, but before we get off, I want to ask, I know Tim has been very early on in the whole blockchain thing, but I don't know where he started. Like, how did he get that inspiration to go digging in deeper. And I know a lot of people don't know the story that in in an auction, he bought the publicly confiscated Bitcoins that came out of the government taking down Silk Road. So that's that's one of my favorite stories of all time because he bought that like what, in 2013 or something like that? 2014, I think is when. 2014, yeah. How did he get into that so early? With my part of understanding of the story, I actually give a lot of credit to his son, Adam Draper, who I'd argue was earlier. It was an even bigger proponent and advocate. And Adam has a, an accelerator called Boost VC that sits at the basement of Hero City, which is where we're all based in San Mateo, California. Adam was an early investor in Brian Armstrong's startup Coinbase, which at the time when I came in around 2013, 2014, they were just getting going with that. And so I think Tim really got a strong sense of it from his son, from Adam. And, and credit to Tim, right? Because he can say, oh, Tim's a dinosaur. He's been doing this for way too long. But he keeps his eyes and ears open for really what's coming next. And he is a very big thinker as an investor. He does not go after the small step-by-step changes. He really goes after the changes that are monumental, be it in fintech, 
politics education. He's doing a bunch of stuff in. So we get credit to him, but he really took to what Adam was advocating and he started pushing the same message. And we would travel around the world and anybody would meet with, he would get on the soapbox and say, here's why you need to start using and accepting Bitcoin. We talked a lot of governments and you need to not clamp down on this. You need to actually make yourself open to it. And as a result, your country will benefit by being whatever hub of crypto and Bitcoin activity. And your developers will become more proficient in blockchain and so forth. So he's been on this soapbox for as long as, as I've been a, a part of, of DVN. But yeah, the origins, I think, are from the Boost VC folks. And, and the first few batches they had were really all Bitcoin blockchain oriented companies. And they were very, very early at this space. So it didn't take a whole lot of convincing once Tim sort of was on that bandwagon. And so we just started seeing a ton of deals. Every, everything in that space would come through our zone there at Hero City. So yeah, and the, and the acquisition of, of all those Bitcoin, I think added even more momentum. And so Tim became this nucleus, a very public figure in the blockchain space. I mean, any kind of documentary or whatever is done about the space typically features Tim. And he's also made these predictions, right? So your audience might not know. He, I think when Bitcoin was at... It was a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred dollars. He said, "Well, it's going to be up to ten thousand by." I think he literally said the month, right? He was like March of twenty eighteen. It'll be at ten thousand. And I was like, "Oh, you're crazy! You're crazy!" And I think he missed it maybe by a month. He was spot on as far as the prediction goes. Here comes March twenty eighteen, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to make my next prediction." We did a big block party, and he says, "Okay, by twenty twenty two, it'll be two hundred fifty thousand per big." And of course, everyone's like, you're absolutely out of your mind. This is when it's at 10 grand. And so now where it's floating 60K, sure now it dropped to, I think, 40, 40 something. But it's not that absurd or unreasonable to imagine it going to 250,000. Maybe not by 22, but once it, it gets full mass adoption, uh, it certainly could be. Again, kudos to Tim for just having that big vision and, and just having that staunch belief that this is really going to work. And it has proven true. So now we're going to move into our four standard question segment, and we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first question is our NBCA question. The National Venture Capital Association advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you would advocate for, what would it be? Great question. Policy-wise, I know there's a lot now brewing around antitrust, and I know a few, I think, bipartisan support for competitive support, right, for, uh, I think, Klobuchar in Minnesota is, is supporting this bill that's really going to look further into acquisitions by big tech. And I think that's really important. Firm believer that th there can't just be a few players that are gobbling up their competitors and squashing them, essentially, which without naming names, that is often the case. And, and sure, us as VCs love selling our companies to the big tech folks, but we really need to think about what's the long-term impact of that. And is that really good for us as consumers, as folks, as citizens in this country? Do we really want all of the smaller competitors to be just gobbled up by a few companies? So I think that antitrust movement that's happening, I think to some degree is, is positive for us as early stage VCs. I know there's a lot of talk now with the Biden administration around capital gains, whether they're going to get rid of the capital gains rate for carried interest. Look, there's a huge wealth inequality problem in this country. Anyone who denies that, I think, just has blinders on. Whether that's the solution for it, I think, makes for a really good conversation. If we had another hour here on the podcast, we could probably dedicate it to that discussion. I think without question, there needs to be incentives for funding innovation, right? That is what keeps this country at the top globally. 
so I think we we need to be very careful with any move the administration makes there that is is going to squash the potential funding of innovation, innovative companies and startups. We don't want to. But there's a fair question to be asked. If capital gains rate, you know, the capital gains tax rate got, got removed, right? If it started getting taxed as, as general income, would that eliminate our industry? Would that get rid of VC? Would that remove all incentive to go out and invest in startups? I don't know. I don't know. And I think that's a fair question and a fair basis for discussion. So that's a space where I think to see what happens. But I think n- none of us want the flame of, of uh, and the fuel of innovation to to go away. And many argue VC and, and capital is is the lifeblood of that. So so we have to be careful. Right. Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? Oh, I love this. I like physical spaces. Existing in a virtual, so so much like virtual only world, oftentimes leaves me yearning for for great physical spaces. So I think I would run. I don't know if it's a retail store, a bar, restaurant, something that can gather people. I think that would be a lot of fun. And not to say I couldn't do that now, but we all know kind of the odds and success rate of, of restaurants and the like. But I think I'd that because it, it brings people together. And ultimately that ties in a lot to what venture and what I do at, at Draper Network, which is just service hub for people to come into and, and get to know one another. And so having a physical space where I do that, I think would be a lot of fun. Awesome. What would you name the restaurant and or bar? Because you had to have at least thought about this once or twice. No. It's a good question. I haven't thought of a name. So, so you'll have to come back to me on that. I'll have to come back and promote it when I do have one. I'll name it after my kids or something of the sort. Okay. Sounds good. Number three, who is someone that you look up to and why? My dad, certainly, because he actually was an entrepreneur that really, I guess, initially inspired me with entrepreneurship. He moved here with my mom from Uruguay, from South America as an immigrant, spoke very little English. And went off and started businesses. So he started a school for Spanish speaking, a technology school actually for Spanish speaking folks. He started then a medical supply business and just worked incredibly hard, but was always at home for dinner and put family above all. And for me, yeah, my dad is is an incredible example of the beauty of this country that you work hard, you can make it, but also the beauty and importance of family. So yeah, certainly my dad. That's great. I'm sure he'd really appreciate hearing that. Number four, and the final question, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Best advice? Well, I guess investment advice might be from Tim Draper himself, who always says, you don't make money as a pessimist. Optimists make money. You got to think about an idea. VCs are always quick to judge an idea why it won't work and give a hundred reasons why it won't. He was always being like, why would this work? And what happens if it does? So think about proposals in that way. And so I really like that. General life advice, I don't know who said maybe it was one of these stoic philosophers, but just the idea of you're never as bad or as good as you think. And so you may make a mistake and think something's horrible, you've ruined everything. And the reality is no one's probably viewing it, it, it as bad as you or as harsh as you are on yourself. But also on the flip side, if you think you're just God's gift to the world and, and think you're amazing and done amazing stuff, you can always kind of temper that by saying no, no one thinks as you're as good as you are either. So I just kind of like that advice as sort of kind of the middle of the road. But I don't, I can't quote that or attribute that to anyone. No, that's good advice. I thought you were going to say on the flip side, don't mess up. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess up. Don't be too hard. Exactly. No, I know. That's good advice. So Gabe, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciated your time and learning about the DVN. Thank you guys so much. That was really fun. And my pleasure. Look forward to chatting again soon. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc.